You're listening to the God-Centered Mom Podcast with me, Heather McFadden. As the mom to four young boys, I know motherhood's hard, but sometimes I think I make it even harder than it needs to be. I'll worry about my needs being met or I'll spend so much energy trying to make my boys happy that I forget that if I would take my eyes off me and my eyes off my kids and keep my eyes on God, that those desires would grow strangely dim and their contentment would go up as I'm led by his spirit. I also forget that I'm surrounded by God. He is going before me in places that I'm fearful of. He is walking with me on the hard days and he's coming behind me, redeeming any mistake I made. So each week I'll interview a new guest and we'll discuss what it means to be a God-centered mom. Thanks for listening. You're listening to episode 42, and today I'm chatting with Stacy Smith. Stacy and I have met a couple times in person, but really I was introduced to Stacy by a friend who told me to go read her blog. Uh, and her story and what she was writing about caught my attention. One, because she she and I share a career. We're both speech-language pathologists. And two, her story involved her oldest son, who at the time was three, and my son was about to turn three. And she had another son, just like I had another son, who was one. And so I could really kind of relate to the stage she was at and then all that she was going through um, when she was told that her oldest son had cancer. Now, Stacy's story struck me, and the reason I wanted her on the show is because I was amazed by how she clung to God in the midst of a truly horrible and challenging time. And um, as she will attest, it's not because she's a super Christian person. It is just um, a turning to God instead of a turning away from God. And I hope that no matter what season you're in, no matter what hard thing you're in right now, that you will be encouraged by the truth that Stacy shares and the scripture she shares, and that if you know a friend or have a friend that's going through a hard time, she also gives some tips on how to help um, those around us who are are struggling or going through hard seasons. So I know y'all are going to be encouraged. Um, this should have been published last month because September is child. Cancer Awareness Month, but better late than never, and I think we should just get right to it. So here we go. Welcome, Stacy, to the God Center Mom podcast. Hi, Heather. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, I have been, ever since I started the podcast, you were on my list of people oh, wow. I wanted to have on the show, and then us just running into each other at the water park, I was like, okay, God, I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to ask her. I'm going to ask her. So, well, you should have asked me sooner. Thanks so much for asking me. Well, I mean, you know, I'm flattered. Well, that's really nice. I, I, y'all, I have followed Stacy and um, her story uh, years, years ago, um, way before I was blogging personally. I, I don't even remember who shared the link with me, but um, I really got invested in their story and. Um, our paths have crossed a couple different times since, and um, so I was anxious to share Stacy and Gavin and their family with y'all. And so, um, Stacy, before we get into your story, would you just introduce everybody to your family, your husband, your boys? Sure. All right. So obviously, my name is Stacy. <laughs> um, I am married to a wonderful husband and father named Jeff. We have two boys, um, Gavin, who is nine, almost 10 years old, and then Garrett, who is seven years old. How many years ago was Gavin? Gavin sorry. <laughs> Gavin, how I many years ago? Do. Yes, yes. How many years ago was he diagnosed? So he was diagnosed um, about six and a half years ago. It was in March of 2008. Okay. Man. Wow. That is at six and a half seems, years ago. I know. At sometimes it seems like that was an eternity ago, and then other times it seems like that was just really, really recently. So he was two and a half. He was um, three, three, and a, three and almost three and a half years old. Oh my goodness! When he was diagnosed with cancer. So walk us back to that time, um, okay. because so, you prior to that was he sick, or was there any sign or? He had been an exceedingly healthy child. Um, I had a healthy pregnancy, had a healthy delivery. I think he had maybe had one cold. 
I mean, maybe two, but no, like, recurrent ear infections or any, anything. And um, about four days before he was diagnosed, I took him to the doctor because he had, over time, probably in the last six weeks before that, had just become a really picky eater. He'd had um, some kind of random vomiting, um, and it you know, he might vomit, but then not vomit for another week. And he started just seeming cranky a lot. And we could never put our finger on it, but things just weren't quite right. He, some of the things just you could have completely attributed to a phase. You know, the picky eating thing. He'd never been a picky eater. We used to joke that we'd have to say, no, Gavin, you can't have any more broccoli until you have some more of that chicken nugget. Nice. It was just kind of the running joke yeah. in the family. And, but he became a really picky eater. And every day he was like, no, no, I don't like that anymore. Mm. And he didn't want to eat things. And then, you know, we'd take him to the park. He didn't want to get up on the equipment. Um, mm. And we learned later it was kind of a vestibular thing, I think, starting then. Um, he didn't want to walk down the stairs. But at the time I had um, Garrett, who was younger, and in some physical therapy for some other things. And so he wasn't yet walking down the stairs. And he was also young. He was only 14 months old. And so I was carrying Garrett. And Gavin would say, no, Mommy, you carry me. And I'd say, Gavin, you can walk down the stairs. And he wasn't able to really verbalize. It seems really funny. I'm afraid I'm going to fall. And he didn't really seem afraid. It just almost appeared to be kind of a, no, Mommy, you do it for me. <laughs> kind right. Of kind of like they're reverting. Oh, they see you. Take right. care of the younger brother, and you so you, know, you think, great. yeah. So you kind of start to think this is yeah. an age thing, yeah. But as the vomiting ramped up, and we had a few headaches, but not very many, uh, maybe two or three over the course of the six week period of time, I took him to the pediatrician and said, "You know, I'm concerned." I had a typed out list of um, <laughs> symptoms. Okay, so Stacy and I are both speech pathologists, <laughs> so see y'all know. So we we know how to take data. You know, we do. That. So I trust that your data collection was thorough. It was thorough. thorough. Yeah. Okay. I still have the typed out list. No. <laughs> oh my so goodness. I took it to the pediatrician okay. and he said, you know, I think he's developing reflux. And I said, really? Wow. Like he didn't have as a baby. And usually it's you have it like when you're really, really young or you're quite a bit older. Um, but okay, we can, you know, try this out. And I remember thinking, oh my goodness, he has reflux. Like, He's going to be on medication for that, and we'll have to change his diet, and wow, like this was huge. And um, so we went home, and we tried the medication. He said, give it four or five days. It'll take a while to kick in. And, and he just kept getting worse, and the vomiting was much more frequent. The personality changes were getting worse. And then he became um, very uncomfortable. We, he woke up one morning, and he would say, Mommy, hold me. And I'd pick him up. No, Mommy, lay down. No, let's walk around. No, let's hold me. It's okay. We got to go back to the doctor. I went back, and they started looking for maybe an obstruction, like abdominal obstruction or something, and and didn't find anything. And said, well, maybe he has mono. Let's do a blood test for that. And then um, they called later and said, well, you know, maybe he's more constipated. Why don't you give him a, you know, pediatric fleet enema and some Miralax and call us tomorrow? And I said, well, I don't understand because he's vomiting like crazy at this point. And I'm right. going to dehydrate him if I force diarrhea as well. And so my mom got said no, and I didn't do that. And I called back and said things are getting rapidly worse and I was unable to talk to a doctor um with the nurse that I called into and so I just took him to the emergency room. He kind of mm. the last straw was he grabbed his head and just started shaking it back and forth violently. Um so I took him to the emergency room and was talking through with the ER physician about all of our symptoms and it kind of hit me as a speech pathologist having worked with patients who have had brain tumors that you know this could be something like really made you know neurological going on and and I said okay this sounds crazy mom talk I understand but do you think it could be a brain tumor and he kind of looked at me with that kind of deer in the headlights look like she said it and he said actually it's on my radar and we're going to start with a CT and I kind of knew right then that pit in your stomach knew that this that's probably what it was. And they did the CT. And at that point, he couldn't even really lay flat without, I mean, he was so uncomfortable because the pressure uh, in his brain was so significant at that point. He was just screaming. So I actually had to kind of lay on top of him or ho hover over him in the um, CT scanner 
for them to even get a still shot of his brain. And um, within maybe five or 10 minutes, the physician walked in. They were actually trying to start an IV on Gavin. And um, it was like two nurses were working away. And he was very scared. And he was very shy back then. So he was very, very nervous about what was going on and clearly uncomfortable um, from just how he was feeling. Um, And the physician walked in and said, I'm really sorry, Mrs. Smith, but your son has a very large brain tumor and it doesn't look good. And I think I said something like, excuse me or what? And, um, and he repeated himself, um, ever so gently and calmly. And, um, I kind of collapsed, um, and said, you know what, this can't be, he helped me up into a chair. I think I kind of grabbed the maybe his ankles or something as I kind of fell. And um, he sat me down in the chair and said, I said, are you, you know, he was shaking and he was hard to keep still in that CT scanner. Are you sure that it's not something else? And he said, no, it's really a large tumor. It's not a great Mm -hmm. scan, but I can tell you that he has a brain tumor. And he said, we called Children's and um, we're going to transfer you there. And they're going to send an ambulance to get him. And... Jeff actually wasn't there with me when it happened. Um, I left that part of the story out, but um, it was mm, closer to 11 o'clock at night. And so Garrett, our younger son, was in bed. And I told Jeff, you know, we don't have time to call somebody to come watch him. And I don't want to drag a 14-month-old into an ER. You know, who knows how long we'll be there. And so I said, I'll just, I'll give you a call when I know something more. And if you need to come, you could come. And uh, not really fathoming that what lied ahead. Um, and so um, I kind of went through this, I would say, really um, raw kind of conversation. I, it felt like I was kind of out of my own body as I talked to the physician there. And I would say things like, are you sure? It really can't be. Like, you don't understand. He's been a really healthy child. And um He's like, I'm really sorry. And um, I I said, well, I need to call my husband and tell him. And he asked me if I wanted him to call him. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, he doesn't know you. He needs to hear from me. And so I'm digging through my purse and can't find my cell phone. It had fallen, I guess, to the bottom through all my, you know, raiding my purse in anxiousness. And um, so I got my phone and then I tried to, I started to call him and then I thought, no, I've got to call the neighbors first and see if they'll mm-hmm. come over and stay with Garrett because Jeff can't drive after he hears this. So then I tried to call the neighbor and she said, yes, you know, just tell them we'll be outside of the garage, open the door when they're ready. And I called Jeff and I remember saying, it's a brain tumor. And we talked for maybe about a minute longer and neither one of us really can remember how that conversation went down. I do know mm-hmm. that the doctor and the other two nurses were crying by the end of the phone conversation. Um, and another friend who lived nearby, I called her and she came and, and sat with us until Jeff got there. And then the ambulance came and took us on to Children's. So we arrived at Children's about, uh, I don't know, two or three in the morning, I think. Um, so that was kind of how it all wow. came about. <laughs> uh, one, I mean, I'm proud of you for your persistence. And I'm also thankful that you have friends you can call in the middle of the night. You know, these are the times when we recognize yeah. who are the ones who do we have the people to call? Do we have do the relationships with the neighbors? Do we have the friends mm-hmm. that can be ready in an instant to sit with us? Well, yeah, you know, I think that it, that's amazing um, when you think about it. When we're all in that um, the throes of motherhood mm-hmm. and we're exhausted and it's been a long day and to be able to just kind of drop everything and come up there. And then I had another friend that I called. She had actually moved from Dallas, another speech pathologist. Actually, both of these were speech pathologists. (laughs) Good people. Um, Good people. We're good, good, good people. And um, she had actually moved up to New York City Mm -hmm. and I gave her a call and um, on the ride in the ambulance down because Jeff drove my car from Plano on down to Dallas then and behind us. And I rode with Gavin, but I had to sit up in the front seat. Mm -hmm. Couldn't stay back in the back with him. And 
So I called that friend and just sobbed the entire way. Gavin was asleep. They'd given him some stuff to make him comfortable, and he was asleep in the back. And I just um, called her and sobbed all the way. So she really got a late-night call, if you think about it, because yeah. it was probably 3 or 4 in the morning for her. And um, and I don't really remember much of that conversation. We just kind of sobbed together, I think, more than anything. Yeah. Um, wow. And when you when the doctor... I mean, I'm sure there was a side of him that was relieved that you brought it up, right? Because you and I know mm-hmm. when we've had to give people diagnoses that are difficult, that it is yes. hard to be the one to deliver that that news. Um, in his telling you what it was, did he give you a prognosis or a you know next step, or was he just letting it slowly sink in? Well, the ER physician didn't. I think partly because that CT scan was so um, grainy with all the movement. He just knew that it was a really large tumor. The tumor took up about a third of his brain at that point. And and so we received uh, a more accurate diagnosis the following day from the neurosurgeon at Children's, and he did an MRI. And um, that's when we learned that the tumor had also spread to the entire spine. Oh, my goodness. and I, I didn't see that coming. I hadn't even thought of it. I think I was in such a state of shock that there was even a tumor. It really hadn't occurred to me, um, even though in normal circumstances I would know that it could also spread. I hadn't thought that it could possibly spread, but um, he pulled up the MRI images and he was scanning through the spine. And as a speech pathologist, um, having done some work in radiology with you know swallowing images and things like this, yeah. I know what a a spine should look like. Yeah. I saw a lot of um, white kind of sugarcoating the spine. and um, So I kind of knew before he even said it what it was going on. Jeff didn't know. Mm-hmm. His background's engineering. <laughs> and um, so it's not as useful for looking <laughs> at images like that. But uh, he was scanning through the spine to get to the brain and was going to talk to us about the brain first and then move on to the spine. And, and I can't even remember most of that conversation because he's talking about the brain, but I already even panic because I know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was able to um, deliver that news um, with the ultimate grace. I have a lot of respect for that neurosurgeon. Yeah. He would give us little tidbits. Um, I do not remember this. He would give us little tidbits and then he'd kind of wait for us to kind of collect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And um, and he'd sit silently and look away and things and then and then he'd kind of give more information and um, and he was very honest um, but um, very gentle. Um, I remember him saying, "You'll only remember about twenty to thirty percent of what I have to say here, and we'll keep talking about it every day until you understand more of it, and that's fine." Wow. Um, but he was very honest, and he said, "I don't know exactly which type of tumor this is." I do know it's very aggressive because there's a lot of blood vessels running through it. It's very large, um, and it spread very quickly. And um, there's a few different types that it could be, but I think that he has about a 20 to 30% chance to live. Um, He said that they would do the surgery in a few days. They had to put a drain in and just to get some of the pressure off from the fluid that had built up because the tumor was blocking a major ventricle that drains the fluid off your brain about three times a day. And... He said, um, we'll go in and um, he'll have a lot of blood loss. We'll have to give him multiple transfusions throughout the surgery. So it may take um, a lot of hours to do the surgery. And after a while, you can't just keep transfusion transfusing blood or they'll bleed out. So we may have to stop at some point and then go back in a couple of days later to get more tumor. And I mean, he, and he was very honest in that there's a chance that he won't make it out of surgery. Wow. Um, so was horrible receiving that news. But like I said, he he delivered it with the utmost grace. I don't know how um, he does that on a regular basis. Wow. Wow. Okay, so you, in the middle of the night, get transferred to a hospital. How soon between that time and the surgery was there? So we arrived real early on um, Friday morning at Children's. It was actually Good Friday. And then we had surgery on Monday following Easter. Wow. 
So um, he had a couple of days there, um, three days, I guess, um, to drain off the fluid um, to allow the brain to not be under such pressure before they went in to uh, take the tumor itself out. So I know the mom's listening. If they haven't already, they've had this fear. Mm-hmm. This could be my son. I know my my oldest son gets headaches regularly, so I've had the thought he will throw up. They'll be so intense he'll throw up, and so I've had even the thought: what if what yeah. if there's a, what if there's a tumor? And mm-hmm. you know, we can go to that place of fear um, when we hear these stories. Yes, definitely. And I know in your world now, now that he's been di- you know, he's had the diagnosis. You've you've you know gone through what you've been through you're now in the world of it you know a lot of people whose children have been diagnosed yeah with cancer. yeah it's weird you and more people like they know that you you know the world so they'll you'll you know you, you'll find out more about it because someone will say oh my niece was just diagnosed yes. with such and such and so all of a sudden it seems common yeah. and it's exceedingly rare and i want moms to remember that um childhood cancer in of itself is still considered quite rare. To me, it, it seems not rare. And when I would go to children's oncology clinic and be sitting in a room filled with people um, on just what was brain tumor day, and wow. <laughs> it seemed very strange to me to think this is this is rare. Like there's a lot of people here. Yeah. Um, or when I couldn't get a bed at children's because I, he needed, let's say he was going to be inpatient for chemo. And they would call me that day and say, I'm sorry, but um, we don't have a bed for him right now. So we're going to have to delay chemo for a day or so. We're just too full. Ugh. And I didn't understand, like, how can this be rare? Granted, children's is a major medical center and a lot of people are traveling for you know out, a few hours away to come yeah. so i try to keep that in mind yeah. but it is exceedingly rare that this sort of thing happens yeah. um but yeah it is it it's very frightening i think as moms um it's difficult not to worry about the absolute worst you know these these children of ours are like an extension straight from our heart mm-hmm. um and the thought of anything happening like this is just unimaginable um and you know i have a i have a number of cancer mom friends who have lost their children to cancer um so i suffer from a different type of fear now and that is the fear of this happening again um and you know statistics don't help me like that that doesn't make me feel good his cancer type doesn't give me reassurance that oh you're out of the woods it's not one of those oh it's been five years you're good or it's been six years you're good um, there's no one that can really say this won't happen again. Um, and that, um, so that fear, I always have to work hard to kind of keep that, <laughs> that yeah. fear in check. Well, and when um, you got the diagnosis and when you're starting these surgeries and the shock starts to wear off and you move into anger, did you have those honest conversations with God or what was your faith in the midst of those first months and of treatment and surgeries, and that's a good question. Um, I can't say that I went um, through a true f- anger phase, um, although I know it's completely normal. Um, actually, any anger that I've had has actually come years later, and it was um, just here and there, um, just feeling the un that feeling of unfairness mm. that he's been through so much but yet we still have so many struggles that come with being a survivor of childhood cancer um you know academic struggles or you know different things like that um still needing you know surgeries after the fact or different things just because of long-term side effects yeah. and i think that's when i've had more of the anger part of it but in the beginning to answer your original question in the beginning, I would say um, I was just so scared that we were going to lose him. Mm-hmm. And um, most of my prayers in the early weeks were just begging, mm-hmm. begging, like just complete pleading with God. Like, please don't let him die. Don't let him die. Don't let him die. I mean, I would just be curious to know how many 
repetitive begging prayers, Mm -hmm. nothing poetic, not quoting scripture back to God just in the very beginning was just an ultimate, please don't let it happen. Please. No, no. Um, it was very, it was very desperate kind of please. And then over time it changed, Mm -hmm. um, it became, you know, more, more specific, um, for the, the needs at the time or side effects of chemo at the time. Um, and then also just, you know, asking for peace and, um, helping us to just kind of weather the storm and, um, you know, for those around us that were also dealing with it and just the grief that you're kind of going through, like trying to figure out this new normal and knowing that life will never be the same again. And, um, and then over time it shifted. Um, I remember, he had a few different scares over time with some scans and um, it looked as though, you know, the cancer may have come back and they may, you know, have said, let's wait and rescan or, or he had symptoms that would make us think that it had come back. And so they moved an MRI up and um, while we were waiting on those results, I remember um, praying and still very much asking God, you know, for this not to be. And, um, or if it was, if he would heal him before we even really had a chance to scan it, you know, um, kind of that, Lord, you created this, you can recreate it. Um, I believe that you can do all things. And, um, but also I think that he was able to kind of shift my heart because then my prayer also became, you know, if it is Lord, I just, I just ask that you prepare our hearts for that. Mm. Um, I can't imagine what that would look like, you know, but I trust that, that you know what you're doing. And I just ask that you would prepare me in advance if the bad news is coming. Mm. Um, so I could definitely see kind of, I don't know that I would call it maturation, but my prayers in that process have changed a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really good for anyone going through any hard time. And the shock we have of any news we get, um, a job loss, an unfaithful spouse, the death of a parent, um, uh, our own personal diagnosis of cancer. There's this pleading, the the David in the Bible kind of crying out, "Yes, please God, take this. And then mm-hmm. David always gets back to, but I know you're God and I will believe in you. And... I love what you said, like, I trust that you know what you're doing. You know, that's what David would always get back to. I, I believe that you know what you're doing. Just prepare me so that I can handle it. And I think it's really, really good advice for just anyone who may be in a hard place yeah. right now, that it's okay to cry yeah. out whatever your desire is. Well, I think another thing that I think is really important for other moms or anyone in general to remember Two is, you know, if you if you go through a period where you're angry about what God has allowed to come into your life, and I always like to preface that way um, when people would say, "Do you think God caused Gavin to have cancer and um, and things?" And I say, you know, I don't know how that all works, but I believe that the cancer didn't come to Gavin before it passed through the hands of God first, Mm -hmm. and. In his wisdom, he decided it was okay to allow this to happen. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a shock to him. He knew it was coming. And and, and it, <clears throat> if you become angry, um, even with God about that, I think sometimes that's kind of a make or break for some believers. Yeah. And and I think a lot of people feel like, well, if I'm angry at God, I'm, you know, I'm not a good Christian, or I... Um, I shouldn't tell anybody that I'm angry. And um, and I always say, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to have that anger. God made us with emotions. Right. And, um, and as humans, I think there's going to be times when there are going to be times when you are angry. And the key is, do you allow that anger to turn you away from God or does it turn you toward God? Mm, like, good. do you go to God and beat on His chest mm. and say, "I don't get it, but will you help me mm. get it?" Yeah. And maybe I don't have to understand it. You know, one of my favorite verses 
um, throughout um, the trials was Isaiah 55, 9, um, which is for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. To try to, you know, go to him and say, I don't understand why you allowed this to happen. And frankly, I'm mad that it did happen. But help me to to process this. Help me with my unbelief, as you, you know, yeah. um, the Bible says. And I think that's a key. And that I've seen, I'm not, I have a number of friends who went through some significant anger and, and that really helped them get through um, the really angry periods. Yeah. The bringing, the bringing it to God, right? They're not yes. thinking that you have to hide it from God. I think that that is exactly what you're saying. Like, yes. And through it, allowing it to help your relationship and your reliance rather than, like you said, turn you away from God. I think that's right. wisdom. So, so, so good. So good. And I'm just um, I, having watched you go through it. It it was a testimony. I feel like to your reliance on his strength, and I'm sure and I'm confident that every doctor you guys interacted with, every nurse you interacted with, all the other parents that you interacted with, that they were ministered to through your testimony of strength. And your source of strength. Do you have any stories of interacting with people in well, the journey? Because uh, it was a long journey. I mean, how long from that night in the ER? Yes. So he started, he was diagnosed in March of 2008. And he finished treatment at the very end of June of 2009. Okay. Um, so over a year. So it was a long, it was a long journey. Yeah. Um, and you know, he had the surgery. He had chemotherapy. For about six weeks, we went down to Houston to do radiation for um, about six weeks with some delays, about eight weeks, and then came back and then finished um, the rest with chemo in Dallas. So we got to know a lot of different doctors. And Well, and um, people may not realize when you just say it like that, oh, yeah, we went down to Houston for six to eight, and then it would turn into eight weeks. Okay, you all think about that. Like she had another child who needs to be cared for. She has a life. She has a family to pick up and leave. And then you showed once all the caps that he collects. <laughs> he still plays with them. In fact, he had to pick them up before bed tonight. <laughs> so these are caps <laughs> from the medicine that he would get? Is that right? Yes. Or from the, the – well, the... Yeah. Um, it was like chemo caps. The nurses wouldn't let him – keep those but he started a cap collection so let's say he was at the hospital and they needed to give him Tylenol okay. for a fever or something and well the nurses would bring it in in a little syringe you know that they had filled up and they would have a little blue cap on the top of it and he would say can I keep that cap I have a cap collection and all the nurses got to know that Gavin had a cap collection yeah. and if it was something that was harmless like that um, or saline or heparin or different things like that. And he was on IV um, nutrition for about 15 months. He couldn't keep anything down. And um, so he went through a lot of caps. Yeah. <laughs> and so he literally has these huge plastic bags just filled with these caps. <laughs> and he still plays with them because he loves garbage trucks and he has since he was two and, and recycling trucks. So he likes to, you know, fill them up and dump it and all that kind of stuff. And he still, he'll still talk about the cap collection and, um, and he gets a shot every night, and we recent for uh, growth hormones to is some damage from radiation was that his body his brain doesn't tell his body to make growth hormones to grow, so we have to give him artificial growth hormone shots you know at night yeah. and and so we recently changed, and there's a little cap on these new needles <sighs> that, that um he he's so excited about and he has these new caps oh. <laughs> I think it's just because you mentioned you kind of said it quickly but when he first got diagnosed he was pretty shy yeah and that, very shy. that a lot of the struggle I remember you writing about was just um a lot of his uh anxiety and fear and the mm -hmm. situations I mean think about for you as an adult like being in a hospital being in a gown being with all those lights and noises and uh, it is not comfortable and it is not easy for an adult and then a child and if you're that age and 
So it it's like he found a coping mechanism, the cap collection, yes. to bring him joy in the midst. And he grew a lot in his confidence. Right. Yes, and he and he um you know in the beginning, I remember being on the neurosurgery floor after his surgery and the uh the doctors and the residents and nurses would walk in and as soon as they walked in, he'd kind of cover up his eyes and go, no, no, I, I'm too tired right now. I'm too tired right now. And, um, cause he just had no idea what was coming next. Right. And, um, and he didn't want to talk to any of them. He was really, really shy. And by the end, you know, he thought he owned the place mm-hmm. and, you know, he would talk, although he, he didn't really start opening up to his oncologist for quite some time. Um, I think, even at that young of an age, he realized the depth of some of those conversations. And we try to shield him from a lot of that, you know. But in talking about chemotherapy and different things and lab work and what's next and things like that with his oncologist, um, he really did not open up to his oncologist. It wasn't that he, um, you know, wasn't polite with him, but he kind of would want to crawl up in our lap and hide his face. And I think he really knew, like, that's the guy that orders the big guns. Oh. <laughs> yeah. But now they have, they have a good relationship and, oh, okay. um, and he'll, he'll openly talk with the oncologist. He was a very good man. Um, <laughs> that's, that's funny. Well, man. Okay. So, um, you have kind of mentioned where y'all are now and, um, that it's still on watch and you have regular scans. And so um, one question I did want to ask is uh, how is it having a sibling and what has been Garrett's reaction to a lot of this? It's a really uh, good question. So um, I think I mentioned earlier, Garrett was only 14 months old when Gavin was diagnosed. And so very small and um, very early, he sensed um, that there was something wrong. When we were in the ICU, the grandparents were taking care of Garrett and they would bring him up. He couldn't come up to the ICU. So we would have to go down and look at the trains, go to the cafeteria with him or something. And um, feeling very torn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd only stopped nursing like a month before. Wow. Um, God's timing was good on that. Um because that would have been very difficult. And um, and he became exceedingly constipated almost overnight. And um, he knew something's off here. Mm-hmm. Like, where are mom and dad? And why are you know, the grandparents here? And why, why are we going to this strange building to see them, like, you know, once or twice a day? This is, I mean, it's threw him for a loop. Mm-hmm. And then um, Gavin became very, very sick once chemotherapy started and he would vomit anywhere from about four to 20 times a day. Didn't really matter where we were in our chemo cycle. He was always sick. And, um, I remember Garrett, he was probably only 16 or 18 months old at the time. And I remember him crawling. I mentioned earlier he was in physical therapy, so he was, um, behind and walking. I remember Gavin was, um, sitting on the living room floor. I had a bucket and he was sick and Garrett crawled over across the room from him and got up on his knees and had his hand on Gavin's back and he was patting his back and just looking at him with the most sympathetic Mm. look on his little 18 month old face. Mm. And I was amazed by that. Um, God knew what he was doing whenever he made Garrett's personality. Garrett's a very patient kiddo and he spent a lot of his time over the years in waiting rooms Mm. Um, and kind of been forced to play second fiddle, um, a a lot more than, you know, a child would ever really choose to. And, and he's, he's done that with, um, with love and grace. And, um, he's just a very tender hearted kid. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, even now I've never really seen much, um, in the way of bitterness, um, with anything with Gavin and, um, just seems understanding, um, of difficulties that Gavin has, um, real tender, um, with, with, with Gavin in general, even still, you know, now there's seven and nine and I think it's really formed who he is yeah. and, and forced him to learn real early 
that the world doesn't always revolve around us. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I, it always kind of broke my heart that he was having to learn that. Um, but I think there's some blessings long term yeah. from having yeah. to go through that. Um, yeah, if I had a chance to write this story differently, you know, I would have. Um, but I, I do think that there's some blessings from learning those life lessons real early, even if it was a way that you had no choice in the matter. I think, I think yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in that. I think sometimes as parents, we want to shield our kids from everything, not realizing that that might be the thing that shapes them into the person God wants them to be right. for some future purpose and plan. So that's really, that's really interesting to hear that side. And I never got to hear your answer on, was there any story during the treatment process where you oh, yes. interacted with someone and they heard your testimony? Um, well, I would say regularly faith comes up in, um, conversations when you're on that road. Um, you know, and I try to be transparent with people and say that, you know, when Gavin was diagnosed, I kind of drifted. Mm. Um, I grew up in church. I became a Christian when I was eight years old. Um, very active through my childhood in church and um, into some of the older years. And um, in college, I wasn't as active and really drifted mm. um, from God. And then um, when Jeff and I met, we got back in church and were active in our church. And then um, we had Gavin, and I was a germ freak. Mm. And I didn't want to take him to the nursery at church um, because I was afraid he was going to get the flu because he was born in November. Mm -hmm. And so what started out as I'm just going to keep him home through the winter mm -hmm. became we didn't go back to church. Interesting. And um, and I really can't explain that. I mean, it was just this because we were very active and, and we just drifted. Yeah. Um, and I drifted more from God. And um, so when he was diagnosed, it was like the sharpest turn you'd ever seen. And um, kind of back to relying on my faith. Yeah. And so I want, I always like for people to understand that like I, I'm not coming at this from an angle of someone that, you know, I don't want people to feel like I'm just this really pious person Some who is super Christian. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, but it is very interesting how quickly, um, I, I felt close to God once again. Yeah. And, um, because he'd never drawn away. He had not. Yeah. He had not gone anywhere. Yeah. And and he made that very, very known um, early on. I remember, um, this is an interesting story. Um, we were in the ICU, and it was the morning Gavin was set to have surgery. And it's about maybe two or three in the morning. And, um, you know, Jeff and I were kind of off and on sleeping on the little couch sofa thing there in the ICU. And I was sitting, and they had a little glider rocker next to the bed. And Gavin was asleep. And I was sitting there next to him, you know, resting my head on the rails of his bed and um, just kind of taking him all in, just that honest fear that he might not make it out of surgery. And I just wanted to soak in every little, you know, curvature on his face. And um, so I was very much awake and I never remember, I mean, waking up after this fact, but all of a sudden I could see myself. So I, I, I'd say this was maybe some sort of a vision. I, I don't really know how to explain it. Heather was very interesting, but I was, <clears throat> I saw myself in this huge cathedral, like a Catholic cathedral, which was kind of ironic because I'm Baptist, <laughs> but, um, it was a very ornate yeah. cathedral. Yeah. And I was actually carrying Gavin. He had his, you know, arm or his head on like one arm and his legs draped over the other arm. And he was very, very sick and he was very heavy and kind of asleep and out of it. And so I'm walking down this very, very long center aisle of this cathedral. And I get to the front and I don't remember there being anybody else in the cathedral. It was just an empty, large cathedral. I get to the front and I slowly and very, very carefully laid him down on the altar. Mm. And I remember thinking, okay, God, like, 
you've given him to me, but I know that he's really yours mm-hmm. and I'm giving him back to you. You know, I trust that, you know, you'll take care of him. And then like right after that, um, I can see Gavin again, like in the hospital bed at children's. And, mm. and I knew right then, like, I didn't just dream that I didn't just wake up. Like I was sitting here, I had this moment and I'm back to this, but all of a sudden I had such peace. Mm. Wow. Kind of that peace that transcends all understanding given the situation. Yeah. Um, you know, we're about four or five hours away from surgery and, you know, I can't sleep in the middle of the night. And I just remember feeling like, okay, this is going to go okay. Mm. And I remember a little while later, Jeff got up and we were talking about it. And I said, very matter-of-factly, I don't think he's going to need any transfusions during that surgery. Wow. And Jeff was like, well, that's a little Pollyanna, <laughs> don't you think? <laughs> you heard what the doctor said, right? I said, no, I don't think he's going to need any transfusions. And I think that he's going to get all the tumor in one surgery. Wow. I think it's going to go really well. And um, so when the when it t- came time to do surgery, we were waiting in the ICU waiting room there and, um, you know, had family there with us and, um, they would call every hour or so to kind of give us updates. Mm-hmm. And every time they call and say, he's doing well, he's tolerating surgery well. And we haven't had to, you know, I don't think they said anything about the transfusions then. They just said, he's doing well, he's doing well. And then, um, about six hours into it, you know, and he had said, if we need to go 18 hours and he's still tolerating, I go that long. Yeah. That's fine. And so about six hours later, he had said, um, I mean, they called and said, he's done. And the doctor will be up to talk to you. And he came up and he said, you know, I'm amazed. I didn't have to give him a single transfusion. Oh, my heavens. And I think I got all the tumor. We'll find out tomorrow. We'll do another MRI. But I think I may have gotten all of it. Mm-hmm. And turns out he had gotten about 95 to 98% of the tumor. Wow. And they had said, that's not worth going back in for. We can get the rest of it with chemo and radiation. Um, and so that wow. was just an, and that, that hit me right after I'd had this little vision thing and just that most amazing piece. And people kept saying during the surgery, like how calm I was. Mm. And some people would call me and I'd talk to them and they'd say, gosh, you know, and they'd even say later, I thought that you were maybe in just a huge state of denial, but I was very much aware of what we were up against. Um, but I just had such amazing peace mm. that I can't take credit for. I'm not just that no. smooth of a person, right? Yeah. I mean, that was just a God-given peace. Well, that you could go from the new mom who won't go to church because a child might catch a flu to right. a mom sitting in a waiting room while her son's in surgery that he may not come out of. That you could ha- – that's like, to me, the miracle – of the Holy, I mean, the Holy Spirit that mm-hmm. like we cannot explain that is otherworldly, that is other physical, that is total spiritual, that, 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 that faith in the unseen. And wow. I mean, that's amazing. But you know, what's interesting, Heather, is when you go through something like that, it transforms your testimony mm-hmm. and yeah. it changes kind of the shape of you and your entire belief system yeah. um, to where it's not that I ever doubted. I had drifted, but I never doubted, you know, who God was, that he was in control, that he was my savior, you know, things like this. But all of a sudden, it's just such an easy platform to share. Yeah. So let's say we go on down, you know, six, eight weeks later, we go on down to Houston for radiation and we'd be sitting in a waiting room with other moms whose kids all have brain tumors and we're waiting on our kids to finish radiation. So we sit and chat and we're all kind of in similar boats and um, very desperate kind of most people early on in the treatment process and easily faith would come up. Yeah. And, um, and you know, you, you, kind of get to where you could almost tell right off the bat, um, kind of based on, I don't know, it was, it was like a weird Holy Spirit kind of radar kind of thing almost. Like you could tell the moms before you really even had too long of a conversation and you had a chance for faith to come up and it would come up quite naturally in these conversations. Um, you could kind of tell who's carrying the weight of the world on their own shoulders mm. and who's relying on God for this. And it was very interesting to me over the course of treatment because it was pretty accurate. 
I mean, fairly early in the conversation with another mom, you're just getting a drink of water in the little nourishment room down the hall, you know, while you're on the inpatient floor. And you could kind of tell, like, I, I kind of got into myself, I have a feeling she's a believer. Like, mm-hmm. I can sense it. Mm-hmm. I can sense it. And, and so you'd have some great opportunities to talk to moms, you know, and um, the ones that weren't believers. And they're like, you know, I just, I don't know how, how I'm going to make this. Yeah. Like, what are you doing to cope? Mm-hmm. You know, have you started antidepressants yet? Have you, mm-hmm. you know, what are you doing to cope? Mm-hmm. Wow. And I would wow. say, you know what? I try to keep my Bible with me every time we come to the hospital and I find that, you know, reading scripture and maybe I'd share some, you know, some of the ones that were helping me at the time or, um, some different, you know, things I'd say, you know, I've got a lot of friends that are praying for me and, and I kind of try to keep that open conversation going with God all day long. And I used to joke that I really never had while we were on treatment, I didn't have like the start and end of prayer. It was kind of like an all day kind of, (laughs) without you know what I mean? You got, yeah. And it wasn't that I was, I don't want to give people the false impression that I was just praying nonstop or anything like that, but it would just come in and just, out of you. It wasn't like it was, you were like, this is official prayer time and this is non-official prayer time. It was just kind of, yeah, a and I did, and I did have some like, you know, dear Jesus, kind of, but I had just kind of this running conversation going, I felt like, yeah. um, and really I would say, um, the blessing of, uh, one of blessings of treatment, um, was just how close I was to God during that time. Yeah. You know, that's when I, you know, I read through the Bible, you know, I, um, and I was just, I want, I was very hungry for scripture and, um, and I wanted to read it. And if I wasn't reading that, I wanted to read another book. Well, you know, it might be a Beth Moore book or it might be, you know, Stormy O'Marty. And, you know, there was one called just enough light for the step I'm on. And it, had all sorts of scripture and um, kind of talking about how God gives us just enough light for the step we're on and then what's our next step and that he kind of feeds us little steps at a time and everything inspirational um, from a faith standpoint just resonated with me. I was just so thirsty for it. And and while I I would not want to go back to that period in life um, or relive it, there are times since then that I'll go, Stacy, you're you're not nearly as hungry for this as you were back then. Wow. And wow. Um, so it's I don't I don't know, but I will say that when you're going through something like that, and you know that you're not, you know, people would say, oh, you know, I'm just amazed at how you're doing this. I don't think I could do it. Um, I would say, don't be fooled, like. Yeah. I am not super mom. There is no earthly reason for me to be able to stand up. We weren't sleeping at night. Um, We were in and out of the hospital all the time. Symptoms were always bad. Um, This isn't me. Right. And I mean, it made for the easiest transition into talking about your faith. Wow. It wasn't like you had to think, wow, there's that coworker or that mom at the play date. Right, 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 right. I would, I would love to share Christ with her. Like right. it was the easiest thing to bring up Christ. Wow. Well, okay. One last question before we're done is as someone, as a friend of someone going through a hard, horrible season, what was the thing that ministered most to y'all? Like what was the most helpful thing that your friends did for you during that time? Um, I think, um, praying like Gavin would be healed. Um, that's what I would tell people whenever they'd ask, you know, what can we do? I'm like, I covet your prayers. Wow. Yeah. And if you'll just storm heaven (laughs) for his full healing here on earth, I'll be forever grateful. Yeah. And, um, other things that people did, um, I think just, there were some really nice things, very generous things that people did for us. And I loved all of those. Um, and they were very kind of shockingly kind to us. Um, but little things like there was a, a friend that lived on the next street over that um, about every Sunday, she'd bring us two or three meals mm. like in a freezer. She'd bring Sunday dinner or something, especially she brought she brought food over a lot when Jeff was here while we, cause he had to stay here and work. Yeah. Um, 
while we were in radiation down in Houston. And, um, and he'd try to drive back and forth on the weekends and things like that. When she'd bring him food, um, the people right behind us, um, the ones that had driven Jeff to the emergency room (laughs) that night, you know, during that summer, um, that mom, while she was off from her teaching um, job, would come over and watch Garrett if we needed her to. Um, and I think people were constantly saying, you know, can I go to the grocery store for you? You're like, what can I do? You know, can I come play with Garrett? Can we come sit with you at the hospital? Um, and I always tell people, you know, try to think of just simple things. Meals, meals were great. Um, gift cards. I remember one person sending us a package in the mail. Um, she was a secretary up at um, Jeff's office at the time and has always been one of Gavin's biggest um, prayer warriors, I might add. And she sent us a envelope filled with gift cards, like $10, $15 gift cards, like Sonic, you know, a gas station, Walmart, Kroger, mm. you know, any, all these different restaurants. Like, so like if I was you know, on the way home, I could go, oh, wait, let's stop there. And I had a gift card for there because it's, I got Arby's, I got Taco Bueno, I've got, I mean, I had, it was wonderful. So it's those kind of things that I thought, um, just the, what would make life easier Mm. for these, you know, and sometimes it's not necessarily a glamorous thing. Um, Jeff's boss at the time paid for our yard to be taken care of Mm. while Gavin was on treatment. And then he did that every other week and our neighbor behind us would mow it on the opposite weeks. And, you know, and so it was those kind of things. It was just kind of like, what, what do these people not have time for? And then offer to to try to fill that in. And and think of it for you, right? Like saying, coming up to you and making you do the work of coming up with the idea in a time where you don't have the brain space for that. Well, you don't. And not only that, people would say, you know, what can I do to help? And, um, we would frequently, um, say, gosh, I don't even know. Um, you don't even know what you need really. You didn't know what you needed. And then to think like, I need to think, think of it and organize it when I'm already so filled with appointments and things like that. I would just think to myself, it might be faster if I just did it myself. I don't, you know, and you hate to bother anyone. And I think that's another thing, which brings up another point, Heather. And that is if you're the one going through it, being able to accept help from others. And a lot of people have a hard time with that. Um, We did. And especially like, people wanting to give us money to help with, you know, offset financial, like medical bills and things like that. And I felt, um, really bad about that in the beginning. And I remember someone saying like, Stacey, if you don't accept these things, you're robbing them of the blessing of, you know, that they would receive from blessing you. Mm -hmm. And you have, you know, you have to let the stuff go. And, um, I think so many, of us as moms, you know, want to handle it all ourselves, especially the speech pathologist type. <laughs> the can-do people. Yes. Right. And so I think being able to step back and accept that with grace um, is something that may not come naturally, yeah. um, but I think it's important because I don't think that the lessons that God has in mind when these things happen is just for the immediate family. Right. And I think that... Um, being able to share your story and, you know, share your situation and allow other people to come and help you is part of it. Wow. And it's kind of a, it takes a village mentality. Well, Stacy, you have blessed us tremendously with your story and just sharing honestly what God has done through you and in you. And like you said, it was, it was really him who brought you through it. And, um, if you all want to just keep praying for Gavin, keep praying. He he still has, you know, like she mentioned, you know, his still has some things going on as far as side effects from the chemo and um, challenges he's still overcoming. And and uh, so just keep him in prayer and keep Stacy and Jeff and Garrett in your prayers. And I just really appreciate you sharing because even though it is rare, 
the chance that we will know someone who goes through this um, or that we go through it is possible. And it's good to just know, know what to do and how to pray and how to counsel and, and just to trust that even in the worst, even in the worst, God is present. Um, mm-hmm. And to, like you said, lean into him instead of turning away. Um, and to know, have that confidence is, is a boost for our fears, you know, to not fear the worst because God is still in the worst. So exactly. He's present. Well, thanks for having me. Well, we really appreciate it. And um, y'all, if anything that we've talked about or um, I don't know if we have any links, but um you know, you can always contact me if you have a story that you just want to talk to Stacy about. Um, I can connect y'all. <laughs> just okay. go to GodCenteredMom.com and for this show, and we'll we'll connect you. But thank you again, Stacy. I hope y'all have a good rest of your week and weekend. Thank you so much. All right. Bye. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the God Centered Mom podcast. If you're looking for more resources on how to replace me with he go to GodCenteredMom.com. That's where you'll also find show notes with any links mentioned by our guest. I want you to really understand and know that God is just as present while you are washing dishes at your kitchen sink as while you are worshiping Him in a church pew. He sees your service to your family and He is pleased. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He takes great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. Have a great day.